to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, nobody. Every week now, in one of their offices, it doesn't have to be the one in Los Angeles, but uh, but yeah, I think I think that's becoming more of the trend. You know? Yeah, and obviously, it, you get all the Twitter stuff that's going on too. But yeah, we, we we've kind of covered this ad nauseum, but I mean, once again, like these sort of like blanket policies uh without direction on like who should be in the office at the same time i'm not sure that they're well i mean we'll we'll see we'll see it's a bold strategy cotton yeah i think it all get settled but this is like um i don't know did you get to take any time off for thanksgiving at least uh i i took uh the friday off after thanksgiving but uh it was it was actually quite nice i, I was actually in your neck of the woods i didn't have time to come see you i wish i did Flew into Dallas, uh, went to my parents' place in deep East Texas, and uh, went to uh, Waco, Texas for the big TCU-Baylor game the following day and Saturday, and then spent the week TCU with my folks. TCU didn't disappoint? They tried to. That was a hell of a game. <laughs> hell of a game. Uh, spent the week with my folks, took the mega bus to Austin on Thanksgiving Day, uh, didn't get any actual turkey. Didn't even eat that day. Actually, that's a terrible Thanksgiving. It's a weird Thanksgiving. That like, is a uh, weird. It was like a lot of hotel life. Uh, Austin was dead. Like uh, I stayed right by campus and uh, went to the football game in Austin, Baylor versus TCU the following day. Uh, had a had a nice flight cancellation. I was I was around. I was going to live the freaking life too, man. I had a first class ticket from uh, DFW to Seattle and missed out on it because like our flight was canceled from uh, Austin to Dallas, man. It's tough being me. That, that's what I know. I had to, had yeah. to take a direct flight. That's how the other 1% lives, right? Down those first class flights, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What about you, well, man? You- like what would you do for Thanksgiving? <clears throat> Uh, I just had some in-laws in town. We had a big Thanksgiving brunch and then took it easy the rest of the day. Had a food coma like most people. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was good. Um, watched some of the World Cup, which has been, uh, I don't know if you're a soccer fan or not, but uh, the U.S. is trying to get me back into being <laughs> a soccer fan. I, I think that like 50% of the joy of being like an American is just like chanting like USA. USA, right? Well, and the funniest thing is, if you watch the games, is the the U.S. fans like try to get their like chants going, and the other fans just completely drown them out because we're like, we're just not soccer native, you know? Like, <laughs> they, they, they just got us covered. Well, I mean, like the fact that we call it soccer and the rest of the world calls it football is a little bit tallied, right? Yeah, I guess so. There's actually one of these commercials that keeps playing over and over again about this with Peyton Manning and David Beckham talking about soccer versus football. It's kind of a, the first time it's funny, the 20th time it's like, all right, can we not play this commercial anymore? <laughs> little saturation for you. Yeah. Exactly. Are you, are you, are you otherwise like a soccer or a foot football sort of dude? Well, so I grew up, I played soccer for like 15 years and um, used to be a big fan and I'd gotten like super into it before the last World Cup. And then the US didn't qualify. And I, I made a, I decided that I was going to boycott the US team until they qualified for the World Cup again. So I hadn't watched the game in four years because they freaking lost to Trinidad and Tobago 
which is like yeah. a country like the size of like a Dallas suburb. And <laughs> it's like, how do we lose to Trinidad and Tobago and not make the World Cup? I'll, I'll be an ugly American here. Are those two separate countries or is that one country? I Are guess two, for the se- two, two separate I, I think, islands. I, I'm completely making this up, but uh, um, I think for the sake of, I mean, I know for the sake of soccer, they put them together, but I actually do think they're separate countries or at least separate islands. I mean, the world may never know. That's yeah, but the U.S. <laughs> has been doing good. They they finally pulled it out, and this is going to date the podcast. Where we finally have pulled it out against Iran, and we're moving on to the knockout stage and playing the Netherlands tomorrow. Well, by the time this podcast releases, we'll know the end of that game, but uh, I don't know it yet, and so I'm waiting with bated breath. It it is like the like the national pride stuff is like super cool to see, and like there is there's a study that essentially shows that like during the World Cup or like when it when a team is doing really well, it brings the nation together. I'll have to I'll have to dig it up and like link to it in the pod notes. There's there's also another cool study that essentially uh examined uh different referee calls during the COVID pandemic. So you know like you get these sort of like sort of dodgy uh refereeing things in soccer, actually any kind of sport. But during COVID, they weren't allowing fans into the stadium. So there was no like home field advantage taking place. And where normally oh, so it was like a natural experiment going on. A perfect natural experiment. So you're playing in the empty, I don't know, 10,000 seat stadium. And uh, these people took uh, just tons and tons of soccer data. And where typically the home team would have uh, fewer fouls, fewer uh, yellow cards, all of a sudden, all those differences equalized out. And they, they attribute it to the social pressure applied from the fans and the crowd to, I, I guess, maybe the referee wants to survive. If you start calling bad, penalties in soccer you may not make it out of the stadium alive yeah you know they kind of joke about that but i think in the past with soccer fans i think it's actually real i think they have like you know gone out and maimed (laughs) referees afterwards and so i think i kind of get it you know yeah it may not be crazy here i've seen other studies around uh football like american football uh kind of exploring the same thing where uh you know, do uh, what's the home field advantage in Vegas? They say it's about three points, et cetera. But uh, they, they, they found that it's really like the uh, uh, distance of the crowd to the field. So like even more, you get like this crowd right on top of the referee and therefore they're more likely to call penalties or not call penalties on the home team. Good. They shouldn't be calling those things on the home team. <laughs> Go uh, La Tech Bulldogs, right? Just need exactly. You need, you need uh, the fans closer to the field, but it's, it's that, also uh, oh, please go on. with our our insane home field advantage. <laughs> that place is pretty cavernous. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it also like 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 it's kind of like social pressure. It kind of reminds me of like different like aspects of like the COVID pandemic. I, I think a lot of people were, you know, trying to do their best at the time, but there was like this like kind of social pressure to conform and like uh obey these uh i don't know medical guidelines as it were uh you know obviously mask and mask and uh you know what do they call it uh quarantining at the house this sort of thing but like like some of the some of the things that happened were like really freaking funny too like uh remember when uh uh 
they had the directional things on the grocery store floor. Like you can only walk down certain ways down the grocery store. Oh yeah. I didn't even, I remember going to the grocery store and I didn't know that those things were there. And so I'm walking the wrong way down (laughs) the aisles and people are giving me the meanest looks. I'm like, why, why are these people being so mean? Give like, I'm the stupid eye. one. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Or like, you know, like these uh, parade, car parades, et cetera, for children. Yeah. Graduations and stuff like that, which in a way is incredibly crushingly sad, but also cool at the time. Yeah, I think everyone's just trying to do their best at the time or, you know, trying to go by the, you know, medical advice at the time. In, in retrospect, it looks silly. Of course, a lot of, a lot of the stuff that, you know, even people in analytics did in the past kind of looked silly. Um, but really, well, like, oh, I mean, on. didn't the pandemic, I mean, I think at least in, like, the work context, I think it stressed people out, <laughs> you know, burned people out. I think well-being became a, a big focus. And then you saw, like, all the great resignation stuff. I mean, it's a, it was a wild time. Yeah. I, I, well, let me let me hit you with a theory here about the Great Resignation. Uh, uh hit me with it. Hit hit you. So, uh, obviously, people like saw their coworkers leave the organization, et cetera, and you know decided to leave as well. But like, what if a small to large factor in people's decision to leave the organization was a result of them going into their house sequestering? not seeing other people, only communicating via Zoom or, you know, other video choice uh, platforms. And it, it's like, what What if a large part of the great resignation was just people feeling lonely and like wanting a way to escape it? What's interesting is because there's been a lot of over-prescribing on what the causes of the great resignation were, but I think what you're bringing up in your theory, it hasn't been really one of them, but I think it's interesting. Like maybe you remember that psychological phenomena? I think it's like Freudian about projection. You remember projection? Uh, Is that where you uh, ascribe characteristics to other people that are in yourself or like what your own feelings are? Yeah, exactly. I think there might be like a mass kind of projection that went on where people are feeling stressed, anxiety, lonely, and kind of blaming their employer, even though it really was the context of the situation, you know? I don't exactly. Know. Is that kind of aligning with your theory or am I misunderstanding? No, I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Uh, flashback to, you know, the summer or the fall of 2020 and folks are working from home. There, there was a big rush of people trying to meet and show, show that they were being productive from the house. You remember, like, because like before that, a lot of organizations didn't trust people to work remotely at all like they we're not going to let call center workers work, work remotely we're not going to let our employees work remotely and maybe we're even seeing like uh uh people reverting back to like you mentioned earlier about coming back to the office but like trying to show that they're productive and be uh overly communicative etc but you you, lo- you lose that connection to your coworkers, and the result just burnout because now now you don't have the commute in the morning, you don't have to commute in the afternoon. Your day becomes longer. Yeah, you know what's funny? Especially I, right when the pandemic started, <clears throat> I would literally sometimes have had like a break between meetings. I would just go for a drive in my car because like yeah. I missed the commute. 
And I, I talked to other people and I think a lot of folks had similar experiences where the drive to work but it was really the drive home from work. That was the thing that you missed the most, which is like your ability to decompress before you get home. Whereas like there, that barrier just kind of, you know, isn't there when you're working remotely. It's a good book into the day as well, right? That your day is over. You don't necessarily have to pop that laptop back open and yeah. uh, continue working. Uh, Microsoft had a really interesting analysis because they have like access to everyone's, you know, Outlook data, et cetera. But they had a, like a really cool analysis showing that uh, I think it's called like triple peak analysis. So people's emails at the start of the day, big spike in emailing. Around the middle of the day, once again, another email, and then late in the day, and they can measure how far apart these become and essentially have a measure of the length of people's days. And during the pandemic, this grew and grew and grew. So what you're saying, that, that those commutes in the morning, the afternoon, really disallowed people from shutting down. You were always on. Yeah, I'm still there, man. <laughs> like the the Three peaks, I guess, is like one giant peak in my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of the it's kind of the beauty and the drawback of working from home. Like, on one hand, uh, you have all the freedom to you know do what you want, all this sort of stuff. But the problem is, you're always at home, always on, and that might extend to Saturday or Sunday. I know I'm guilty of this. Well, tell me this, Scott. Do you think the Great Resignation is even going on anymore? Or has the context changed with, like, inflation and all the stuff that's going on there? Boy, I I, I only have, like, uh, my own opinion and supposition. But I think that inflation, I think people realize that they're, they're going to need a job, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. They're going to need a job to thrive and uh uh, afford like bread and milk or any sort of groceries that they want much less any sort of like sort of luxury goods to the point where you, if you have a job you're holding on to it because now we're seeing specifically in the in the tech sector people being laid off and uh i'm sure those folks really wish they still had these jobs definitely yeah no no kidding i don't know i think what's interesting and i've been kind of playing around with this idea i mentioned it to a pretty prominent person in the HR technology space yesterday. They said it was a stupid idea, but I'm still going to mention it, um, which is you know, over the last 10 years, which is really when people analytics came into its own, it was one pretty consistent context where everything was up and to the right. You know, companies were making more money. The stock market was going up. People analytics headcount was growing. The number of people doing people analytics was going up. Wages were going up. Team, you know, team sizes, technology investments, vendors, all of, all of the like was up and to the right. And I think for the first time in, in people analytics existence, we're going to have to kind of grapple with what is people analytics when things aren't necessarily up and to the right? And how do we deal with that? <laughs> Man, that's a really interesting take on it. Because like, you're right, like uh, all of our uh, technological advances that allowed for like more and more analyses, et cetera, and better insights have taken place during this sort of like boom period. And yeah. hey man, life is great when life is great, right? But what does it look like when uh everyone's gotta 
uh, engage in some sort of austerity. Well, I mean, like to get really practical, you know, is there a need for recruiting analytics when you've frozen all your rec, you know, and, and things like that? Well, I mean, like what you're, what you're getting to is like, what is the value of people analytics? What is it delivered to the business, right? Yep. Well, I think it's going to take a fundamental reprioritization of what people analytics focuses on. Like, I think things like productivity and efficiency are going to be trading at a premium compared to where they were in the past. And, you know, things that were kind of, I'll call it nice to have, are, which were seen as really kind of like sexy and forward-looking in the past, maybe won't be as sexy anymore because they're just not as relevant in this, you know, world that we're living in. So you're you're kind of hitting on like a, I'll put it in psychological terms, like a Maslow's hierarchy of people analytics business needs. So, yeah. uh, like at the base, probably selection, right? Well, in in times where people are hiring talent, anyway. Yeah. I mean, what what if the base is just making sure that like you have the right productivity per employee, right? The lights are staying on. And then you kind of work your way up from there. And because, you know, we've traversed the hierarchy, we've got a lot of teams that have been working on self-actualization type of thing. But really, maybe right now we're going to have to go back to the basics or it may be even, you know, maybe they even skip the basics and so they need to go there for the first time. <laughs> Let's go back to these uh, good old days where like we just like, oh man, if we turn the lights on, they work harder. <laughs> if we we flip the lights off they work harder even harder <laughs> yeah maybe maybe that's it Scott. i think you figured it out man totally but i mean like it, once again like what, what's the value of people analytics and like I, I think it's uh like you said we, there's sort of like these sort of affinity projects etc but at the end of the day people analytics makes the organization improve decision making quality as it relates to uh, human resources. So, like, say from from a business perspective, you might have like, uh, if, if we pursue this customer segment, we can expect a forty percent increase in sales. If we pursue uh, option B, we may only get a twenty percent increase in sales. Let's pursue option A. Uh, it's not perfect, but you know, it, it, you give your best guess. People are ex exactly the same thing. Like, if you hire this person, we expect them to be more productive. If you hire this person, eh, odds are probably not. Maybe, maybe we get it wrong, but overall, in aggregate, we're going to get it right. And that's, that's the beauty of people analytics and the real value that it provides. Well, and kind of like, and sorry, I know I, I seem kind of monotone today, but I'm actually feeling pretty sick right now if, if our audience hasn't noticed. But the thing, um, the thing I'm thinking about is like, this notion of like, how does people analytics prove that it's not a luxury, mm. right? Is it, was it just the luxury for the high times, you know, when um, we were all sipping tea with our pinkies up or is it, uh, <laughs> you know, is does people analytics have legs for the ups and the downs, you know, you're, you're, you're playing hurt today, but you're hitting too close to home with our Louisiana roots for the sipping tea on the front porch. <laughs> Got to get some of that that beautiful sweet tea. Put a little lemon in there, you know. 
So like in in the high times, you can engage in these sort of practices like uh, our selection instrument uh, improved the validity coefficient from 0.45 to 0.47, this sort of thing. That seems kind of sort of a luxury sort of uh, circumstance. What would it mean like in, in downtimes or like, is it all about productivity? Is it all about uh, retaining the employees that you have? I think actually, and this is the person I was mentioning um, that I kind of bounced the idea off of mentioned this too. And I think it's very prescient, which is the critical role, like workforce planning comes very much back into the fold of, uh, of importance. And I, I always used to say, cause I, I started out my career in workforce planning is there's workforce planning in times of plenty and there's workforce planning <laughs> in times of not plenty. <clears throat> and, you know, you may not like it on the, the second time, but it's still really critically important. And one of the things that's a key tenet of workforce planning is identifying the critical roles in an organization. What are the skill sets that bring about the, the value to the customers or whatever it is that you're selling as an organization? And then making sure that you're retaining that talent. Now, retention more broadly may be deprioritized, but retention of key critical talent that's punching above its weight in terms of productivity and value that it brings to an organization it becomes even more important, not less important. So I would say you kind of have this like power law distribution of mm. like retention for the key talent is like extremely important. Whereas retention for almost everybody else papers off really quickly. Yeah. I mean, go back to like, again, this, you know, Boyle's papers on star performers, just absolutely fantastic read. And like, I, I sometimes like to think about things in like a, a sports context just because it's so easy to sort of relate. So like you think about like an NFL team, uh, what, what it starts with, like, what do you want to do? Like, do you want to be like a pass first offense? Do you want to be like a run first offense? This sort of thing. What kind of talent do you need because of that? So let's go out. You, you grade players that are coming out of college. Uh, you draft the ones that will fit your system. And then uh, hopefully that provides you with that competitive advantage to go forward. And at, at the end of the day, we talk about people analytics, like these colloquial terms, like looking around corners, because the currency of the day is really prediction. It's all about being able to forecast needs in the future and provide the best guess estimate of what will happen in lieu of essentially random choice because it's, yeah. it's really people analytics versus what, what, what's, what's the comparison? And it'd be just so that, random. That's a really good question. And I think that's something that I think a lot of leaders don't even consider, which is like, it's not good people analytics or bad people analytics. It's people analytics versus nothing. And what does nothing look like? And how do, how do you make key decisions when you have nothing? Absolutely. Like, so uh, I think selection's a really easy one to go to. So it's like, uh, imagine if like all your people and like folks went away uh, and you're stuck with hiring again. Uh, so it's just manager judgment. I mean, they're, they're probably hitting on some aspects of culture or things that they like, but we, we kind of know the data of what happens when you don't use a structured interview or you just kind of like, Higher based on uh, uh, your best friend's son yeah, is it, exactly it, it, it. Oh shit! Not not even to mention like 
some of the crazy shit we've seen like in like training evaluation or conducting training where uh you'll this is when people analytics folks are around like hey if uh our people analytics folks say like people that score a five on this measure uh that they're promoted later following training so everyone fill out a five on your sheet you're gonna be promoted it's like no no this is not how it works this is not how it works well, I think this fits in. I know I've said this probably in some of the earlier episodes of the podcast, but back when I was a, a leader of a people analytics team internally, I always had this saying that do what works and only that. And how can you know if what you're doing is working if you don't have science and data to prove it, right? And if you just kind of live by that dictum as an HR department, you would be surprised. It's really hard to live by that dictum, by the way. It's not easy. Um, but if you do live by the dictum, these times, like tough times or high times, it, you're going to ride the storm. You can ride the storm. And the, the good news for IOs is uh, kind of twofold. Like one, you're equipped with, uh, you know, uh, more or less a uh, liberal arts slash philosophical background. So you know how to research, you know how to do various things. You uh, are exposed to a wide variety of things, but also you're equipped with uh, strong research methods, which will never go away. Uh, once again, you see people doing some wild shit when they're left to their own devices of doing research on their own, be it like non-randomized trials or, you know, what have you. And what this means is that IOs in particular are fungible talent. And there's lots of areas where IOs can play. If, uh, say, they got rid of a PLANX function, you can go to consumer research because Let's be honest, sales makes the world go round. That's the lifeblood of an organization. You can go to uh, various, <laughs> all, all over, I, I ran out of steam there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was like, where that, 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 That's your one that? option. That's your one option. You've got whatever you're doing now or consumer research. You better like consumer <laughs> research. My, 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 point is, my point is like you can transition <laughs> to the business if you really wanted to and make waves and like show your value there as well because you are equipped with these different uh, practices. Absolutely. I, I mean, I agree with that. And uh, <laughs> even, even with the slip up there, but yeah, that's, I mean, eh. point well taken, but, anyway. uh, well, you want to do some nerdery dude. Yeah, let's do some nerdery. Uh, let's see. So I got a couple different things pulled up here. Let's see if we can run through them quickly. Uh, are you, an, are you an oldest sibling? No, you're, the young, oldest child? you're a, oh, well, that explains so much, dude. I didn't know that. It really, really does. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, were you like left out of Thanksgiving dinner? Like you got like the, the smallest portion. You know, it's funny. We, we used to joke about this in my family. Um, and it, it's, it's, I don't know where you're going here. I'm, the I'm excited. strangest coincidence because it makes no sense. It makes no logical sense why this would occur. And it happens. It still happens to this day. So when we go out to eat as a family, when we go get like order food, my food gets brought out last <laughs> every time. And it's like the only logical explanation <laughs> is, is that I'm a middle child. Like it makes, but like, how would waiters even know that? You know, how would the kitchen staff know that? Get, but it's happened it. so many times, <laughs> like countless times. I, I, I don't know. I, I can see like your older brother, like, do like showing the eyes be like yeah kind of like nodding to the waiter and like your younger sibling just like yeah like i'm the youngest i need like special treatment too anyway 
I meant to talk about it when Richard was on because he said he was a middle child, and I was like, ah, I see it. This is why we like each other. Uh, Joy Oliver too. I think she said she had like ten brothers and sisters, and she's like down near yeah, the bottom. Like eighty percent of them are middle children. You know, like that's not that, really that is true. Character. That is true. Mm. Well, check this out. It's a new study. It says uh, birth order and sibling rivalry impacts companies too. Uh, younger siblings who are CEOs take more risk than older sibling CEOs. For every older sibling a CEO has, risk uh, risky corporate spending goes up by fifteen percent. What what is risky corporate spending? That that's what I would want. Like, are they like you know spending it all on like booze or something? Like, what are they like? What is risky? <laughs> I guess like dodgy FTX sort of spending. Like, hey, let's buy some houses in the Bahamas. Whatever. Uh, yeah, let's all live in a house together like crazy people. <laughs> Check this out. Risky uh, spending goes up by thirty percent instead if the CEO's older sibling is also a CEO. So we we can dig Whoa. it. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, that, talk about like a rarefied family right there too. Like, yeah, I was like small sample sizes. Come on, like how many of these are they actually comparing? <laughs> I mean, like we could get into like some sort of like psychological traits of these families too. Like what what's going on in this family where I'm thinking like some sort of dark triad might be going on. Well, I mean, I want to ask you like, do you subscribe? Cause like, I know there's people out there. It's kind of like astrology where they really subscribe to the birth order stuff. Are you like, are you a birth order type person? I think that there's, I, I really don't know the research on this. I, I really don't, but I think there's gotta be something to it. Right. Uh, it, it, it would make sense that, uh, your family be harder on the firstborn child, right? Uh, just because like, that's the first one they're trying to do the best by it. And it makes sense that the last child would also eh, get a free pass, which me as a last child, I feel that <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like I've experienced special treatment by the family. Definitely. Free pass, Scott. That's, that's who I know. And the the fact that like oh you watch these videos of like free pass guy yeah uh, you you watch these videos of like the youngest child when when they're told that they're by their mother that they're gonna have another child and the kids fucking freak out I love it so much like there's something there's something to it and it may be like evolutionary there's something like innate and people understand that once you're the middle child and you can speak to this Cole. You are no longer the special one. Oh, yeah. Well, you're special, but in other ways, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I, boy, I'm making like a weird connection here, but I, I found this other article uh, this week. Let's see if I can figure out the name of it real quick. Uh, essentially, pop it up real quick. Uh, is pay for performance detrimental to innovation? And I'll, I'll try and loop it back to this like birth order thing here in a moment. But a fantastic study where, um, you know, obviously they're, they're trying to figure out like if, uh, uh, you know, paying people different sort of payment schemes is related to innovation. And they set people up with these like virtual lemonade stands. So it's like computer program. And they ran like 2000 people through this. And you have various options to like go to different, you know, sites and a couple different like, knobs you can turn this sort of thing and they set people up on three different tracks so like one is 
your pay is always consistent across uh, the 20 trials. One is uh, pay for performance. So you get like 50% of the profits at each interval. And the third one was uh, you had a uh, consistent payment for the first 10. And I believe a you got 50% of the profits in the final 10. So like they're, they're encouraging people to explore the different options of the uh, lemonade stand, as it were. And they found that like if you were just like a base pay sort of person, consistent pay, you didn't even like change sites in this virtual location. If you uh, were uh, pay for performance, so once again, 50% across the different 20 metrics, you did a little bit exploring, but if you were in the uh, exploration sort of payment uh, condition, you did a whole lot more exploring. And they, the kind of fascinating thing is that they analyzed people's uh, notes they took and people in the exploration group to like were much more thorough and much more uh uh consistent i don't know they, they developed a, like more consistent sort of uh strategy to explore different options than even the pay for performance or probably the uh uh variable pay folks just a really really crazy study i mean it makes a lot of sense though it kind of actually goes back to the maslow's hierarchy thing from earlier um where in the expiration phase, you've got your sustenance needs met early on, and that gives you the flexibility to try out a bunch of things. So later when the, the stakes get a little bit higher, but if the stakes are too high too early, you're going to have to, it's kind of like you become hand to mouth with, you know, the benefits that you're getting and therefore innovation goes by the wayside. Absolutely. And they had two more conditions, like in a separate study, where it was a termination situation, where like, if you didn't achieve a certain goal after 10 trials, you're, you're done. And another one where if like, you didn't achieve a certain goal by the 10th one, you were done, but they gave you a golden parachute package of reward. And those folks that had the golden package, they'd engage in a lot more exploration, they engaged in riskier sort of exploration, whereas the folks that uh, did not have that parachute, sequestered they did not do any sort of other exploration they wanted to keep that profit as stable as possible it's pretty good analogy for organizations like have you ever seen someone that's kind of like under the gun like under a performance improvement plan or something like that they start doing weird shit they start not taking risks they, they start being a little bit more reserved uh and they start acting weird too yeah because you get put under the gun but what the last condition that you mentioned made me think of, and I'm sure it was probably based on this research why they did it, uh, was like Google X. Do you remember them? Where they were like, it was Google kind of, their, they called it their moonshot factory. And what they would do is they would pay people to fail or like they would give them a yeah. big, you know. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert to speak to this, but I remember seeing something along the lines of, it's like, it didn't matter if your project launched or did not launch. You got a big party to celebrate and like a big payday at the end. Oh, yeah, that, that ties back to what I was saying about or the, the thought process with the sibling relationships, where if you have this sort of golden parachute, this kind of speaks like the, I don't know, society at large, like people that have a parachute or a socioeconomic status behind them have the luxury of going out, exploring, going to college and like exploring different fields. And, uh, you know, may, maybe if you wanted to, try to your hands at a startup go go do that whereas 
if you need to eat, you're going to go dig ditches or do whatever you need to do to make that happen. I, I don't know if that last segment worked at all. So maybe we have a rough transition right here. I don't know. But uh, how about this one? This is this is a cool study. Uh, did you ever apply to like Google? You ever interview with Google? Uh, I never have. I mean, no-ish. No, yeah, oh, I've talked to them before, but never far enough in the process to talk to like a person who actually mattered. Well, they they were famous for their sort of like brain teaser questions, like uh, mm -hmm. how many ping pong balls could you fit to like a jet airplane, or like how many cows are uh, on the earth, you know, this sort of thing. And uh, are you sitting down, dude? Yeah, you're sitting down. Uh, yeah. it, it turns out that these are not predictive of job performance. Whoa, I'm glad I was sitting down. <laughs> and worse, uh, narcissism and sadism explain the likelihood of using these brain teasers in interviews. <laughs> Is it sadism or sadism? I don't know. I, I barely know English, dude. I'm just trying. I know Texan. That's what I know. That's a... Uh... Scott Free Scott over here, Blast That's, Child. I don't care. Yeah, I I just rainbows all around me. Um, but I mean, there there is there is some logic to these brain teaser questions, right? It's it, granted, it's it's the Rorschach of uh psychological tests or performance uh, measures, where like like the Rorschach, you, it doesn't work, but. You can see it. Like we're gonna show you a splot of ink on paper, and you're gonna tell us what you see, and that'll like give us some sort of like insight to your thought process. Brain teasers, uh, I don't know. Uh, how many people could you fit into a football stadium if they they fed on the field too? Once again, we're we're gonna see like how you think about the problem. Uh, you know how you actually deal with it. And we're going to get some sort of insight into you, you, how you're thinking. Well, like, I think about this, like, what's the non-sadist way of doing this if you did want it to be more predictive? I think it would be to actually explain what you just explained, because I think one of the biggest criticisms is they just say, how many golf balls can you fit into an airplane? And then they just leave it there. When what they could say is, how many golf balls do you fit into an airplane? You may not know the answer, but walk us through your thought process for how you would go about answering this type of question, and that will help us determine how you break down complex problems. Like, I think something like a disclaimer like that would go a long way to making it more helpful. And it still probably wouldn't be that helpful, but it wouldn't be so much of a gotcha, sadist type of yeah. thing going on. It definitely feels like a gotcha situation, but I'd love the dude to like, or or woman, whatever. Like you ask you ask the question, like how many golf balls could you fit in the plane? They're like, uh, fourteen million, and just leave it at that. <laughs> just, just okay. And what if it was fourteen million? That would be wild. That would be really wild. <laughs> I think that's all I got. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that's that's one way to end the pod. Yeah. Well, it's um, man. This is a rough one. It's much, I mean, I'm feeling like dog shit right now. I think we've exhausted everything we could do today. Yeah, I think um, 
I think you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a people I like podcast with Colin Scott. Thanks for hanging with us today. This probably we'll, is in our A game. We'll we'll do better next time, baby. Exactly. All right. See you around, bud. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.